Hey there, what is up? It's 90 degrees in LA, and you know why that is? On a February winter's day? No, not just global warming, but also the fact that we have Mr. Sunbeam himself on today's show, as I like to call him, Steve Morse. Holy sh! Now, you know I would not bring you a single player that I wasn't totally pumped up about. And we know we're talking about, we go all the way back to Joe Satriani, the first episode, one of my huge inspirations. For me, this one, well, it goes back even further than Joe Satriani. It goes back to when I was first learning the power of the guitar. And Steve Moore showed me all the music you could deliver through the fretboard. My name is Jude Gold. I'm the host of No Guitar Is Safe podcast. This is our 21st episode. And I thank Guitar Player Magazine for supporting my podcast. When I was 14 years old, I stayed up all night long on a school night decoding that intro. Then around 4 a.m. I got to this part and maybe got the first phrase if I was lucky. Yeah, that song's called On the Pipe from the first Steve Morse Band album, simply called The Introduction. The thing I love about Steve Morse is he's not just a great guitar player who can play pretty much any style. He's not just an amazing hired gun in terms of getting fantastic gigs. You know, he's played in Deep Purple far longer than Richie Blackmore ever did. Big shoes to fill. I was stunned when they chose Steve Moore. Stunned by like, whoa, I would have never predicted that. And stunned by, whoa, what a perfect choice as a successor. This is a great song that Steve wrote with Deep Purple called Sometimes I Feel Like Screaming. I just love the way it builds up. Of course, there are live Deep Purple albums, too, if you want to hear Steve Morse rocking out on some of their classic tracks and their famous hits. But to me, Steve Morse is just so much more than just a great guitar player. I mean, his records transcend the instrument, and that's what makes great music. It should be bigger than the instruments that play it. And he is that. He is a true composer.
shows you with the power of melody that you can soar, that you can fly. I mean, it's not a coincidence that this man also flies planes and used to fly around his band, The Dregs. Let's listen to some Dregs. That song is called Blood Sucking Leeches, one of the more rocking tunes. But even with the rock, you know, there's always that fiddle in there. Always got to have that fiddle with the dregs. Love that. Of course, at first they were called the Dixie Dregs. I first heard of the Dregs when I was at Casadero Music Camp in the Bay Area up in Northern California. And all the teachers, all my great teachers who I love so much, they were all talking about how the last day of camp they were going to drive into the city, into San Francisco, because the Dregs were in town. And they were going to check out Steve Morse. I was like, who is this guy? There's no YouTube. There's no Wikipedia. I'm like, Morris? How do you spell that? Turns out, of course, it's like Morse code. Steve Morris. I finally saw him on the cover of a Guitar Player magazine about a year later. It was before his Music Man endorsement who have been fantastic to him, by the way, and make fantastic guitars. Steve Moore's signature model. But this one was the Telecaster that looked like it had been through the war and had about 17 pickups on the front of it. I instantly knew that this was the guy, the guy to check out and listen to, and I dove straight in. He did so much cool stuff on the Steve Morse band album, like he could play the blues, had cool wah-wah sounds. Later, I got to interview him for Guitar Player Magazine, which I've done a couple or three times. And I realize he's doing that with the tone knob with his pinky. That's not even a wah-wah pedal. I love that. So much tasty stuff. And just such the composer. Well, I had the great fortune of catching up with Steve at the NAMM show. I'm telling you, this was the first NAMM show. I've been there about 15 times in a row. This was the first one since I've had this podcast, which I started in August, and I had only one goal, interview Steve Morse, and I'm so glad that it happened. We got a conference room right on the side of the courtyard up there in the Hilton. Thank you, Bill Amstutz from uh, Guitar Player Magazine for giving me the green light to, uh, to book that. He knows what's up. And a couple hours before Steve was due to cross the way and go into the convention center and and meet thousands of fans at the Ingle booths and the, and the Ernie Ball Music Man booth and probably TC Electronic and a couple other companies perhaps. Before he did that, he came in and we had the most chill conversation and jam session, whatever. And I hope you enjoy it. I hope you also realize that there are a lot of people that are described as being humble. I think this guy, Steve Morse, is one of the few who truly is humble who truly is a humble student of the universe and truly inspired. Thanks again to Guitar Player Magazine, Bill Amstutz, Michael Melinda for supporting this. And also quick shout out to my boy, Adam Johnson, great musician, genius ears, who first got me into podcasts and showed me the power of this platform. I really hope you enjoy the show. I hope you also enjoyed the Paul Kantner episode. I had to do a quick little half hour tribute last week to my, to my fallen leader, 
Paul, who passed away at 74. I was trying to get this one done for you, but I was like, got to tell you guys about this guy, Paul. And it was just a quick, spontaneous tribute, but I really hope you enjoy some of the stuff that I that I got to tell you about playing all over the world with Paul Kantner of the Jefferson Starship and originally the Jefferson Airplane for the past three and a half years. Tonight is Grammy night, and they're going to mention him, and I'm really psyched about that. And he's getting a Grammy, which now is posthumous for lifetime achievement, and I'm really psyched about that. And I'm psyched that he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, even though he couldn't give a shit about those things. He just wanted to rock. Hope you enjoyed that. Now, let's go over to Anaheim, to the convention center, to the crazy-ass Hilton, to the one quiet room in that whole crazy hotel during Nam Week, which is the room where I sat down with Steve Morse, and we played. I'm plugged into a little cube, by the way, with a little microphone on it, he is plugged into uh, a random Mesa Boogie amp that I brought with me. Cool amp called the Royal Atlantic. It's not his normal amp. He plays these ingles and stuff, but he was happy to plug into whatever was available, and I thank him for that. All right, let's go. No guitar is safe. Gotta pinch myself. I got Steve Morse playing rhythm guitar for me. I, that, I, that was that, that was great enough. Just those five seconds, right? And you did a much better job of playing the rhythm and the, the lead. <sighs> well, if anyone knows anything about you, there's that you're humble, which you are being right now. And, no, I, uh, I just I'm truthful. Oh man, thanks. I mean, if I could take that comment and put it onto a picture frame and put it on the wall, <laughs> like <laughs> I would. No you know, thanks for coming to the um, Nam show here too. This is a uh, a f- nice room for an AM show. This is very a very nice peaceful room. spot, but this all, is this it? is as good as it gets. <laughs> we got this conference room here. Instead of cramming into one of these bedrooms where everyone's partying in the hallways and everything here at the Hilton, we got this nice, serene conference room. The yeah. skies are cloudy and cool and, and roomy. And there, there's oh, no. Yeah. Normally, you hear a bass solo and a saxophone and electric guitars in several directions, and then somebody doing drum credence you know just yeah it's it's amazing how 
how many hours a day that is on the floor. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, you walk through the different sections. Now, as great as this room is, and you're right, I and mean, for, for NAM standards, this is like an Olympic-sized pool, basically. It's, it's huge. We should call in, like, you know, a marching <laughs> band here. But you know where I really was hoping that our first podcast would be, and I hope to have you on here in the future as well, was actually at your pad. I've always wondered, what is your pad like in Florida? Now, is it true that you have an airstrip there? Yes. <laughs> Tell us about that. Well, a guy's got to fly. guy's got to fly. <laughs> How long is your uh, airstrip? It's, it's 3,000 feet, but it, it's, it's part of a hay farm. And it's, it's really nice because, you know, we have kids and stuff and can drive them to the city easily. We're really close. Yeah. Close in is, is what it's all about. That's great. Is it a paved r- runway? Like, no, just, just, just grass. A, it's a grass strip, man. Yeah, most of my little planes that I've been flying over the years are tailwheel type. It right. keeps the prop out of the, um, Dirt. the grass when the grass grows. Yeah, that's probably good. <laughs> in the south, we have this grass that grows several inches a day in the summertime. Yeah. Called Bahia. It's real wiry stuff. It's crazy. Several inches a day. Yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah. like, you know, you, you ever seen when it rains and, and there's like mushrooms growing that weren't there the day before? Yeah. Totally. It's like that. You, you cut, uh, cut the grass and come back and it's like, oh man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> After a, lo- a big rain in the summertime. That's amazing, man. And so you have a little studio there too? or Yeah. It's, it's everything's pretty low key. And as you know, most of the work involved with music is, I guess, mental. You know, as a guitarist, there's plenty of physical stuff to, to coordinate. But, you know, planning out your recordings and all that and making the artistic selections of what to use, as everyone knows, you can do quite a bit just on a laptop. So studios have changed drastically from the day when... And we used to put up a, oh, wow, this room is going to sound so great for drums, that kind of thing, to now, which, you know, which drum replacement software do you you use? (laughs) It's exactly, I mean, it's crazy. What's your main platform at home? Cubase. Oh, cool. On the road and and at home. I love it. And it's, it's got everything just already in it that, that I need. Yeah, these these programs. I mean, these software applications have just gotten kind of out of control. How much? It's you can like do. learning a language. Yeah. If you chose Latin, you should probably stay with Latin, and just re- learn it the, to the best of your ability. And and they, they all look at each other's features and try to stay competitive. So, I'm not too worried about the fact that I can't drive Pro Tools. Just give me the files. You know, I'll I'll. Yeah. I'll edit it. <laughs> yeah, it's you can. You, I mean, most guitar players when they think of another guitar player who can do anything, they say you come to mind. Like, like your technical knowledge, just about everything in general. Just like the second you walked in here and called this a smoked glass, you know, it's like you know what, you're right. They can't see in. Well, well <laughs> I'm I'm a, I'm a curious person, and you know, like driving to a gig, if I see somebody, you know, working like welding a part on a bridge on our overpass or something. I'm just as curious about how he's doing that. What kind of technique, where's the power come from? What tools is he using? Where did he learn that? How, how good did he have to get to get that gig? As I am, you know, about the, you know, how, how did they string up those lights where at the gig, where, the, where they're, 
hanging from you know a 40 foot chain you know exactly. stuff like that Every, I've, everything is uh, amazing to me i guess it's the only the only thing i'm not really into is is like you know studying negative stuff you know such as i don't know just like i guess the tax, you know, some people are historians audits. are like into studying warfare and stuff like that you know I, it just it just doesn't you know the things i'm naturally yeah. curious about have to do with you know sort of technical and you know the hows and whys of uh of things also me everyone knows how you are very mechanical too now when you were flying the plane for drags or steve morse band you sometimes you had to repair it yourself before you guys could take off for the next gig am i right yes you're right what was the craziest job you ever had to do on a plane before a gig <laughs> um we were on the west side of the Rocky Mountains, we had to get over to Denver. It had just had a big snowstorm, and we had landed there with one of the vacuum pumps going out. And it was in the middle of the blizzard when I was landing, and you know, and it was not forecast. These were in the days when you didn't have the the weather, you know, on satellite, or it was just a yeah. different world then. You you made a phone call before you took off, and that was that was pretty much it. And when when you went over these remote areas, you wouldn't get to talk to anybody unless you were really high up, and we couldn't get that high up. Wow. So anyway, landed with uh, one of the vacuum pumps out. The other vacuum pump, if I used it to break the ice off the wings, it might put enough pressure on that to fail that. And then you know, in a twin where you can't see outside, you really need the vacuum pump to, to operate the gyros. That's why I have two of them. So what does the pump do for the flying the aircraft? Keeps the gyros spinning. The gyros are the things that keep, that let you know which way right. is up and down because you can't rely on gravity. Right. When, when you're, you know, in turbulence and stuff. And then, anyway, we were on, <laughs> kind of on approach there and the guy says, we've gone below minimums. What are your intentions? Meaning, if you land, you're not going to, probably not going to be able to see at the moment you're not going to be able to see the runway when you reach your minimum altitude yeah. you can descend to which basically is, he's saying you're kind of hosed what are your intentions <laughs> yes exactly and we're you know we've been flying for hours low on fuel the snow everywhere the ice is building on the wing i have to get this thing down i don't want to risk uh, uh cracking the, the ice on the wings because it again like i said it puts a big jolt on the pump which has a frangible shaft designed to break if there's too much of a load so that it doesn't damage the engine, which is geared driving it. So, um, yeah, that was weird. So I said, we're, we're going in ILS. And since we were part 91, not part 121 or 135, we can do that. It means you're taking, you're taking it outside the... That's why airline flying is so safe. They, they just have a hard and fast rule. This is below minimums. We're not going. We're going right. to divert somewhere else. That's it. That, does, that would prevent a lot of... Uh stressful situations yeah but they also have much 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 more capable equipment you know with a lot more you know ability to, to get above the weather like a lot of corporate planes yeah. do fuel reserves yeah, well yeah sometimes they get caught with where yeah. they don't know what's what's coming with the fuel reserves we had the fuel like i said it just was the fact that the vacuum pump failed at the time i needed the boots right so anyway i just said we were going for it and i just kept everything as straight as i could and then we landed on a big blanket of snow <laughs> <laughs> and it turned out the runway was underneath it. <laughs> so, oh, really. No, you, when when you do an ILS, you know you're going to be really close if you follow follow the localizer. You're you're going to definitely hit the runway. The question is, you know how how much are you, are you going to see? Right. So it, it it turned out fine. But the next day, I had to get across the Rockies, and I went to crank up the plane to move it and and uh, 
test, you know, see if they, they'd replace the, uh, the pump because I'd ordered that. And all this huge gush of fuel came out. That's <laughs> bad, I, right? Yeah, that's bad. From, <laughs> and so we got that fixed, and then uh, I loaded up the band. We took off, and the heater wouldn't come on. It's a gas-fired heater. It's like a blowtorch in, in inside another chamber. Wow. I was like, oh, my God. This is not going to work. I need that for backup windshield DI so I can see. And, and seeing uh, is good, too. Yeah. And, and everybody was going to freeze, going, you know, going high over the Rockets in, in the winter. So, uh, so I, I turned around. And, and back then, you could get the guys to help you out. And so I asked the controller. In fact, it was, it was the, uh, the local tower there if they would see if we could get a flight, if there's any flights out. He actually went and made a reservation for us. So nice. we flew a commercial over there. Then I flew back and got the plane and then brought it across the next day (laughs) stuff like that you know and there's a lot of stories i could go on but you know i did spend thousands of hours of flying with the dregs and steve morspan and that's that's why at one point you know my friend and and one of my pilot mentors who flew with us a lot in the early days he said you know why don't you come get a job at our airline you got enough experience and you know i know you could do it wow and I always picture you and Bruce Dickinson hanging out sometime, just talking shop about flying. Have you ever hung out with Bruce Dickinson from Iron Maiden? Several times, yeah. And that's what we talk about, his airplanes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, man, I'd, I'd like to be a fly on the, on the wall there. He used to fly a, Ford, a Cessna 421, you know, uh, yeah. with, it, with the band, the Iron Maiden around. I, was, I thought mm. that was pretty interesting. You ever do double bills with them in purple or something? Or, uh, they, they've sat in with us uh, uh, a few occasions. And oh, when, cool. when we do a... Being in purple, you have to do a, a certain amount of English gigs sure. or UK gigs, I guess they would say. And usually at every UK tour, there's some kind of fundraiser that we end up doing. And guys like Bruce Dickinson are always volunteering their time to. Uh, yeah. So so we see them a lot at those kind of things. That's great. So back to your home studio. I've, I, you know I love that song, uh, Tri County Barn Dance. I picture you recording that back there or something with acoustic guitars and stuff. Yeah, so yeah, that's, did it. definitely. It's the stuff like that. To me, working on an album is, is, is part of life. You know, not, I don't like it when it's my whole life. You get more done if you work 12 hours a day on something, for sure. You get more done per day. But I like, you know, having a lot of different facets to my life. And then coming in, and the music is just a big, welcoming, sort of interesting challenge. Like the way somebody would approach doing a crossword puzzle after dinner or something like that. Yeah. And that's, that's how I usually do my, my solo stuff. Just no, you know, no pressure, just kind of relax and enjoy it. Yeah, that, I love that tune. It sounds beautiful. Maybe, can you want to try a little bit of it? Uh, I actually don't know which one you're talking about. It goes, it goes, wait. But I can play rhythm for you. I mean, I can't remember. I can't. I don't know the ending. Of, I can't recall. Something like oh, that. Oh yeah, it's got a cool little little on. Little, uh, we can just jam it a little bit if you want. And then, and then, then what I'll do is I'll, 
we can listen to the actual recording. Like we'll noodle for a second if you want. Take a little listen to that real quick now and see hear the acoustic version. How did you stack those guitars? It sounds so beautiful. Oh, I just, I think I just did a melody. I think I just did the melody kind of like you would playing to yourself. You know, kind of playing the chords yeah. a little bit and then, you know, that would be a fun tune to do. And then just, you know, then split into chords and melody. Yeah, yeah, split into chorus and melody uh, tracks, you know, so you can, you know, have a little bit different sound on them. stack a bunch of acoustic guitars to get that full sound yeah probably actually I would, if I looked at the track sheet I could tell you sometimes I'll just just be messing around and try different sounds in fact one thing I noticed that I do during making an album is it just randomly changes the sound of the guitar you know but use a di- different combination of amp and speaker or, or mic placement or a different mic and just purposely change the sound and then say, now what part would this sound good with? You know, just just to throw myself off, kind of, and, right. you know, and, you know, try, okay, this sounds good with the mic, what if I put in uh, some direct signal with it? Just, like I said, just, yeah. it's fun well, to, to not have that, you know, that exact repetition of everything. I always love the three-dimensional sound of your instrumentals. I think as like an instrumental guitar music, and certainly you have many more instruments than just guitar in your music, but it's just inspired so many people to actually... Like one of my favorite quotes about you is from a very fine, amazing guitarist, Jimmy Herring. 
Ooh. You're his personal hero, basically, as you are to many other players. <laughs> Jimmy is like absolute top shelf amazing. Top shelf amazing. And he just says he has the most 100% world respect for you because not only are you such a wonderful composer and a fantastic player and everything, he also just being from the South, too, he, he thought like, <laughs> he's like, people always beat up on us for being stupid or something. Well, I forget what he said, but like, and here comes this brilliant musician, Steve Morse. Who's your most biggest, who's your brilliant guy who doesn't even have to be a guitar player? Who was your guy when you were first putting oh, your music Oh, man, it started with, I think, originally with, the classical composers hearing Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, and a big, the biggest exposure of that to me was Walter Carlos doing the synthesized music because, you know, Walter Carlos was dealing with just modules of Moog, you know, like here's a oscillator, here's a filter, you know, we're going to modulate it with this oscillator and do this a bunch of tracks and you know tailor the, the the shape of the voltage controlled amplifier so that this note is really short and then that note's going to be really long meticulously piece by piece but making it interesting for you know a kid in my case you know a, a teenager to just be attracted to it and then 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 i saw the of course i saw the genius of the writing and was like oh my god this is this is incredible it's you know, and this was at the same time that on the radio, <laughs> or, or I just think it's so funny that you just played Gloria because so there's been three or four other players on this podcast who mentioned that that's what got them going, and you're, you're mentioning that that's actually not what got you going. That was what was there, and. This well, brilliant what got me Walter go, Carlos. Or, okay, well, with electric guitar, like it, the, the thing that really got me. What a groove that was. It was rock and roll, and it, yet it was disguised as a pop song. So to me, it, you know, it, it appealed to everybody. That's why they were so huge. But they came on the family television show, which was uh, Ed Sullivan. And just, you know, and every gig they played was a record, because that, yeah. that's how they recorded was. You guys want to do 
one take okay let's do it live one take <laughs> and it was perfect yeah old school so that's that's what got me into playing the guitar and yeah. and that guitar was really a cool instrument but then when like i said when i got into classical composers it was like oh i see and and i had gone from from playing that kind of that style of playing to sudden suddenly saying you know i was like started reading music and playing violin partitas that Bach wrote. It turns out my grandfather played fiddle, and so I inherited his violin. And in that violin case was a book of Bach violin pieces. So I took it out and said, "Oh!" And I sort of, you know, learned just by by process of illumination how to read music. Right. And you know, was really slow at it. But once I started playing this, I said, "You know what? This method." These box patterns are not working so well because yeah. you know violin for one thing is tuned in fifths, so you have different fingerings that, that naturally, if you wrote for the instrument, that would would occur. So I I developed the style of picking uh, every note alternate, regardless of whether I was crossing strings or not, just so I could, you know, be sure and hit every note. So I didn't have to plan that, and so as as I was slowly working these kind of things out, and and I mean slowly. That that the as I sped them up slowly, I, I got used to picking every note. So that that really changed my approach to it. Right. Well, those pick markings that we see on guitar music, those are really bow markings and uh, alternating. <laughs> yeah, and that's right. That's where it comes from. And, <laughs> yeah, de- definitely. And you certainly play like a violin. Now, when did you discover how brilliantly the electric, like a distorted lead guitar, works with a violin? They almost have a similar timbre. You know, the violin tone guitar. And with the dregs, you did some, like, it sounds so three-dimensional. First exposure to me was, I think it was Yardbird. Little games. The middle. They played that line with the cello, and 
I, I don't know if it's Jimmy Page or Jeff Beck, you know, one of the UK studio guitar yeah. gods played that line and they overdubbed it with, it sounded like a cello. And this is, this is all from memory, you know, maybe different, right. maybe may have been a viola or something, but it sounded like a cello and guitar. And I was like, oh my God, here, this sounds amazing. That's so cool. Cause I just assumed you coming from the South that it was from some bluegrass stuff, which I know that's in your music, but yeah. that's so neat that it actually came from across the pond. Oh yeah. A lot of, a lot of what got me, you know, just like how the Walter Carlos got me into the classical, really got me into it. Uh, the, a lot of the bridge music got me into, you know, like I didn't know a lot of the Robert Johnson yeah. tunes until uh, Led Zeppelin did in Prince. Would you suggest a tune that we could listen to from the Dregs that you think is a good example of one of your, uh, I mean, there's so many. What's one of the great melodies that you're really proud of that's a guitar and violin together so we can hear that sound? Whoa, okay. Well, we, and, and it, almost on every album, we had a violin and guitar duet. But if you mean them blank melody together? Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, do you have Freefall? That was one of the first ones. I have that on vinyl, Brett. <laughs> Let me see if I, ha- if I have it in zeros and ones. <laughs> zeros and ones. <laughs> title track? Or? Uh, yeah, title track. He's playing just the top note of the chord. Then we break in the melody together. That, now that, I think, obviously, John McLaughlin was my biggest exposure to the format that we, you know, the five band, or excuse me, the format that we ended up with, which was violin, guitar, keyboards, bass, and drums, is because at a very formative time in my life, that's, I saw them play and was lucky enough to be right up front when they played Intermounting Flame. <laughs> it was incredible. <laughs> that must have blown your mind a little bit. Yes. Now, any for any guitarist who hasn't successfully written a score and had it work when you hand it to band members and they read it and they play it and it works or it's pretty close and you just got to tweak a few things, like that is an amazing feeling. That's also a lot simpler than working with an orchestra. Which orchestra did you work with? With Deep Purple? Oh, well... It was- Several, several London Symphony Orchestra and then hacks. Uh, <laughs> we had it actually in, in Japan and South America. We had different uh, orchestras, and we had a Romanian orchestra for a, a travel with us. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Of. I'm literally through all throughout Europe. Now, how did what was it? What did you learn about scoring for how many people? Sixty people, thirty. <laughs> oh well, one at one point. Uh, I'd sent Night Meets Light, which is a Dregs tune that I've written, to the, the arranger for that, that gig at, at Albert Hall. And every, the idea was everyone was going to do some solo piece. And we had Ronnie Dio with us, and he was going to do some of the stuff that he was sort of intertwined with 
because he'd been on one of Roger's solo projects. It was sort of like the Magical Mystery Tour. But, yeah. but uh, so everybody was doing something. And, and I had to have Van Romain, you know, the Steve Morse Band drummer, do the drums with the orchestra there because the timing of the conductor is so, they play so far behind the conductor that we, you know, and, you know, rock musicians are used to one, two, three, four. You start on the next beat yep. and the orchestra well, has this building delay and they wait for the, to, for the bow of the first violinist to move and there's always a, that gap yeah. and it's just too friggin' weird. So, so we, we sort of had to get on the, like get the percussion guys together. They would, they would do it by ear also. The, the orchestras would follow the percussion. So we got them on board and, and uh, that really helped to, to uh, synchronize the two things. And we had a great conductor, and he would anticipate and, and start earlier than the beat. He, he, I don't I'm, know how he did it. I'm so with you on this, because I, I was fortunate enough to play two gigs with the uh, Oakland Symphony, and there's a couple of s- movements that I had to start on guitar, like, and it was very percussive. And he would lift that baton and just, and we are expecting it, you know, as, as yeah. backbeat musicians, when that thing goes down and hit, goes towards the floor, that's where you want it to be. And I was so freaking early every time, and I never could get it, really. I had and to look at the bows of the instruments nearby and watch them. Yeah. I, I waited almost for the uptick to the, to, to the t- when it was almost to the two. Yeah, yeah. But when, when there was, you know, a total stop like that. But the, uh, the arrangement that we ended up with Nightmare Light worked well musically, but time-wise when we took it to another orchestra that had never seen it there's time changes and bar changes all over the place so without van romaine there and we are on tour it just didn't work so the next day i said i gotta come up with something so i something wrote something real basic the well just like that and and uh using the software i had on my laptop which was cubase you know printed out some some scores and i only arranged it for maybe five different groups but you know like this violin could you know we could have six people playing that part and then do the second violin have six people do that one as well and so we we were able to involve pretty much the whole orchestra and then i I, you know just put a print a bunch of rest and then at a certain time printed a lot of the same stuff for horns you know and i i was like looking up trying to oh what is B flat C or is C B flat? You know, I was trying to go through the trans exactly. transposing of everything. Which direction? So anyway, I, and I printed this up at the hotel in the business center and, and brought it in, and it was really cool because it, it was just straightforward. You know, no, no challenge whatsoever to the rhythm. It would, right. you know, some of the stuff was hard to play where the 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 violins had to do those with little slides and slurs and stuff, but it, basically they just read it down and it was instantly available to play that night. Oh, so that amazing. was really cool. So that's, yeah, it's a magical feeling. And those, I call those real musicians. <laughs> yeah, well, they're, yeah, and it's a different kind of music to be, yeah. and different kind of musicianship in general. They don't improvise nearly as much. And, and in, well, like, like we were saying, they, they can read down the stuff. But the time-wise, they, they, they definitely wait to make sure somebody else is is starting before they go with a conductor. <laughs> yeah, they don't stick their neck out and have the blame while interesting. I remember you showed me that once. But I, I have to cheat. I cannot alternate picket. 
Oh man, so much melody, man. We'd like to do something now that Steve wrote in the uh, dressing room just a couple of minutes ago. Uh, we've quickly arranged it with the orchestra. It's a special thing called the well-dressed guitar. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think you're, you're playing inspires so many players because of the melody that pulls people in. You know, there's another melodic guy that I talked to recently, Mike Stern. He's extremely, oh, wow. yeah. extremely melodic. You, you guys get to soar. Like, you, you, don't, you know, just the, by virtue of the power of the melody alone, you're taken off in the stratosphere. Well, I don't know. When, when I was in school, my main sort of guitar theory instructor was Stan Samoli and he was just such a great bridge between me only kn knowing Jimmy Page licks and the world of jazz that I was supposed to actually be caught up with at the time and he you know and he, he had seen this kind of thing before where this guy likes music and this guy can play guitar to some extent but he he needs to learn this kind of stuff that the jazz program was into and one of the things he said was a quote from Wes Montgomery is that you know the melody in the solo should be just as beautiful as the melody in the piece but different and so and I mean that's for most solos that's pretty much impossible to just do on the spot but it's something to aspire to nice I love that how long have you been in purple now because some of the world still thinks of you as the new guy but it's you've, you've been there much longer than richie ever was yeah it's so been, been 20 time. years 24 well it's it's i'm starting my 23rd year 23rd year mm -hmm. and um what's your favorite part about that gig as a guitar player these you mean you you could do all you do all kinds of gigs but what's the best part about being the lead guitar for deep purple wow that's well, there's a lot of good things definitely i mean it's it's a dream come true as far as gigs go. The, I think the coolest thing of all is that Ian Gillen and I have a real connection. And, you know, despite all, we may disagree during a writing session about what to do or, or this is good, this isn't good, or let's do that, let's not do that. And of course, since it's, you know, I am the new guy, I pretty much say, okay, well, you guys, let's do it like you guys want. <laughs> the new guy. But on stage, he totally supports me and and vice versa you know i i really like that raj and i are super close just hanging out kind of all the time just feeling comfortable with one right. another and we travel together a lot so i don't know those, those those sort of those personal relationships are part of the camaraderie that that you should feel in any band and I enjoy feeling that, even as a you know new guy coming to the band 22 and a half years ago. And uh, musically, I think the, the coolest thing is that everybody was pulled from other groups because they were good. That you know that was Deep Purple, and so the level of musicianship was really high. And you know when I improvised something with Don Airy, there's. You know, he, he's like an extremely top-level jazz player. His ears are incredible, you know, and he's constantly challenging me with that, you know. 
what about this? Oh yeah, you think you got that? What about this? <laughs> it's great. So so it's 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 challenging. It's it's comfortable in in some ways. You know, the feel is just deep in the pocket. Like when I got to jam a, a few gigs in a row playing with Leonard Skinner, things like that. Uh, I love you know being just being in that big easy chair feeling of wow pretty much anything you do is going to be okay as long as it feels this this good you know that's wonderful man and you totally deserve it i know it was tough when you first joined the band too not i mean i know it was wonderful of course but (laughs) you told me once about when you showed up in a stadium in south america and you were so new that a couple people didn't know that that uh Blackmore wasn't going to be there. <laughs> what happened that one day? Oh boy, that's that's a crazy. Yeah, that first year or two, there was people throwing stuff. I remember one gig. You know, when you when you got the lights on, you just see the lights, and you can't really see beyond the lights if the lights are pointed at your eyes. But I just happened to see something coming my near field of vision, and it was a bottle spinning. <laughs> you know, coming. I ducked. And at the angle it was coming, it hit John, who was kind of hunched down. Shit. I was at that at that time. I was kind of standing almost in front of John Lord, and hit him square in the head. A big, heavy beer oh, bottle. Oh man! And I I felt horrible about that. You know, and I obviously I didn't mean to do anything. You just you just have an autom- automatic reflex to duck. You know, when something just just like you would blink if if a right. bug is about to fly in your eye. So all the band members like, hey Steve, why don't you stand over there? No, stand over there. No, stand over there. <laughs> yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. After that, and uh, yeah, Gillen would have would have torn the guy in two if he could have found you know. But uh, you know, the cowards always do it. I remember you almost it. tore a guy in two. Or oh, oh yeah, back in <laughs> Chile. Okay. In, in Chile, I was playing, and this guy was in front, and I, I didn't lay eye on him until the end, but he was spitting at me every time I'd go near the front of the stage and do a solo. And when you're doing a solo, again, since it's, you know, you're trying to make it different every time and make it a statement of how you feel at the moment, well, the way I do it is I close my eyes and just make a world, you know, of just sort of emoting the music. Just, just feel it and just let those those hours of practice and everything sort of take over for you just try and feel some phrases just try and feel something so you're closing your eyes just feeling it and all of a sudden this guy's spitting on you like like a llama i mean a llama <laughs> yeah, yeah seriously Shit. it was i mean it i guess it was amazing from an olympic sort of perspective you know how how much distance and accuracy he had, but he was spitting on me. Yeah, that's the most optimistic thing I've ever heard anyone say. Yeah. To look at it that positively. I'm sorry. Go on. Tell me your. Story. Well, I mean, on a technical, like I said, I'm, I'm curious about technical things. <laughs> on a technical view, it it is amazing to have that kind of propulsion. I mean, he was going up, and with with pretty pinpoint accuracy. <laughs> Fuck. And the last, very last one was at the end, last song. It landed in my mouth. Oh, brother! And that was, oh man, that the end of the song happened. Normally, it's long. Blah, 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 poosh, we're done, and that poosh was the sound of my guitar, my precious number one guitar hitting the stage because I threw it off behind me, I threw it up in the air. It went behind me, and I just remember the sound of it crashing, you know, hitting the floor. And I took a, just dove. In because I'd finally laid eyes on the guy. After that, I looked. He looked at me and and was like pointing at himself and saying, "Yeah, it was me." Oh my god! And I just dove. And then the security guys thought I was trying to crowd surf. 
So they were like helping me, but they, they, then they realized, oh no, the crowd's got him. Some of the people were like grabbing me, Just they were, because, you know, tearing yeah. the bracelets off and, and, and stuff that I was wearing. Fans. And, and the, the security guys who I had been for, been pointing to that direction that yeah. you got to get this guy that's spinning on me. And they say, pick, you give me pick, you know, they want to get dark picks, the security right. guys. <laughs> so they weren't like really, uh, you know, you're like, I'll, they, give they you, were, I'll give you 20 picks if you get that fucker. <laughs> he, he was, uh, I was going after the guy out of blind, uncontrollable rage. You know, and this, this is probably something to get me put on, on some kind of no-fly list for admitting that. No. But the, the, like I said, in spitting on your face and it lands in your mouth. Oh, man. That was, so, all right. So I'm like horizontal, reaching out, trying to grab the guy's neck and the, 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 the people are, are you know like i said taking off all this these these cool braces that i got from our african tour and oh man and uh and, the, and the, most of the people thought it was cool but some of them knew that that guy had been doing that and uh so the the security guy sort of pulled me back and threw me back up on stage the crowd cheers it's like all right he loves us he the, crowds the whole us. stadium thinks yeah. you're stage diving into that they thought i was you know and and it was the most you know, negative thing I could possibly have been thinking. You know, was, I'm going to kill that guy. Did you ever get close to him? No, they the Couldn't some of the people some of the people beat him up, and oh. what's you know I feel bad about it, but I I just I guess we all have these weird primordial reactions to to things. You know, you could talk about the way you'd handle something, but when it happens, it's a different world. You know, certain things do take over. Oh, yeah, that's the absolute biggest party foul, what he did. <laughs> My God. What a, what a weird yeah. gig. And that, that it, it goes even further on that gig. That gig was just a disaster. It was where, that was the one where the people climbed up on the uh, overhead truss over the light and sound out in the crowd. About 70 people were sitting on it. There was, the security was like not like it is here they were only interested in picks and so on the first song that started to sway they were like trying to make it sway and it toppled over hit a bunch of people in the crowd supposedly no one was killed but it cut the lines for the from the generator so there's sparks f flying the molten aluminum or copper was was melting and we, we stopped for like an hour and a half while they took people to the hospital and tried to figure out how to not have a riot this it was a yeah the stadium where they'd come over the walls, and and it was just like a free show after once they said there's no more tickets oh yeah well, we're we're getting in anyway man so, that's hectic you it, join a giant band and you think you never have to deal with sketchy situations again but can well, any level band you can find yourself in a oh, sketchy yeah. situation well imagine just picking up everything and going to a new place each time there's always good you know there's always a problem like uh, they plug the the Hammond into uh, 480 volts. <laughs> we got to get another uh, tone wheel generator. Right? You know, stuff oh. like that. It's just every day there's something. Big circus. Well, you've certainly come into your own in the gig, and, uh, and you deserve everything that you've got. I'm sure that everybody knows who you are now, wherever you go. <laughs> that oh, <band>. yeah. <laughs> Which is wonderful. You know, I feel bad talking about this because it's, in general, I have a really good uh relationship with the fans and the and the ones that come to the shows they know that if they're going to see deep purple they're going to have to see it with a different guitarist than richie you know and i think 
they they accept it and you know and plenty of people have embraced it you know I didn't have any real huge expectations of of making anybody forget Richie. No, you no. Of course, you bring so much to the band, and you pay total tribute to the classic tracks, and yeah, you you amplify it totally. Well, well that's a really nice way of putting it. But all, all I'm saying is that that one you know super negative incident is is a funny story, but it 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 it, it belies the reality is is that in general things are are really great. In fact. To the young people that we've been playing to, they've only seen the band with me in it. So, you know, right. I have a great relationship with people. You certainly do. Your fans love you, and for good reason. Uh, they call Jimmy Herring is Sunshine, but I think you're the original Mr. Sunshine. He's <laughs> <laughs> a cool cat. You know, Jimmy is, he's absolutely so amazing. Just talk about soloing genius, you know? Yeah, well, I, did you guys hang out ever? Maybe we met each other a couple we, times? I, I met him when he was actually he was more of a student you know and i noticed that over the years that i would see him here and there at at gigs and stuff and he could play a lot of drag stuff really well and i always told the guys i said that's that's the one to get it if i get an airplane accident (laughs) (laughs) it's funny there's a lot of them out there you know i have this student uh, that i know at a mi great kid from sweden he plays all your stuff he's got a, a steve morse model music man there's been a few of them, but he, he really plays. His name's Chris Eklund, if I'm saying it correctly. I know you, speaking of your fans, I know you got to run. Um, you gotta, you're going to go shake about probably 500 hands over at the Music Man booth here at NAMM. I uh, thank you so much for making the time. I certainly hope that we get to hang out again. Me too. Because thank they, you. I could talk to you for hours and hours, and, I, and I'd love to invite myself over to that the airstrip and (laughs) (laughs) you're invited (laughs) thank you for that invitation that i just solicited now um before we go you know i remember can we try a little on the pipe man when i was 14 i had the vinyl record slowed it down to half speed sound like this (laughs) and i stayed up all night learning it to the best of my ability go ahead it sounds like you gotta get a really good tone in that we'll see you want to count it off or? Day bomb. I lost my volume. Sorry, one more time. I, the, two, I breathed on this. Two, three, four.
fender to a the lightest this because it it doesn't shock the when I hit it doesn't shock the bones. Interesting. The, the part of the bone inside your the meat of your thumb down there. Yeah, the scaffold on both sides. What's happening there? You, your yeah. hand your hands have kind of been through the work. You have the skateboarding injury on your fretting hand. I do. All, yeah, <laughs> I just I just live a normal life and don't baby my hands. But this this happened from doing this twisting motion for fifty years hours a day interesting so they technically uh, call it arthritis or something it's osteoarthritis okay advanced osteoarthritis well, most guitar players have to deal with something with their hands and it's, yeah. it's always very stressful yeah we, we get these carpal tunnel things yeah. you know and and uh, tendonitis from straining your tendons and that that takes a year and a half to go away or whatever and <laughs> there's always something how do you deal with it psychologically because it's kind of just for example, the other day I, I had a, a metal fragment or something in my index finger and I couldn't play for like six days. I literally couldn't use that finger on the guitar. I had to dig it out and it, that you feel like your wings are clipped kind of. I get, yeah, I get metal in my finger a lot. <laughs> but you just keep positive attitude, I guess, because a guitar player is very stressful when your hands aren't fully 100%. One thing that use a use a grinder with an abrasive wheel and you'll get less metal frankies. You get, you get splatters of stuff that may burn you, but <laughs> you won't. <laughs> it's using, using cutting tools, I sometimes get metal fragments. I was like moving a filing cabinet or something. Oh, and that's hard edge. yeah. You got something paint in there or something, man. It's so yeah. tiny. It's but, very painful. <laughs> yeah. I put on two or three pairs of reading glasses and, and use a, a needle. Oh, yeah. And just, you know, kind of but I mean, Excavate. psychologically, you keep your spirits up. How do you how do you approach uh, this? Isn't it kind of a <laughs> stressful when your hands are like acting up? Oh yeah, and yeah. Psychologically, this is this is one of the hardest periods of my life. But I'm exploring three different kinds of playing. One is playing with my fingers. That sounds I great. Had some some great advantages, which is the most. Uh, advantageous thing about it is that I can have control I can completely mute the other the other strings which is why I use this two fingers and a thumb technique is because I could use the heel of my hand and my fifth finger to mute the strings and only play the note in between and and still have a, a, a way to con move the controls so it's very practical for me but it turned out to be very strenuous over the course of you know I never thought I was going to even live this long, you know, so I, I, I didn't plan for this. But anyway, the, the other thing is, is switching to the regular grip, but I'm really supposed to wear a splint. It's like a cast. And uh, my splint right now that I have won't allow me to hold the pick. I have a pick with a bunch of padding on it that I can do with the splint. And that's yeah. that's one of the things I've been practicing with, and so it's 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 all playing from the elbow. Yeah, right. And the downside of that is controlling the strings that you're not playing. You get, right. It's really that's really hard. And then another technique I'm also doing is instead of it is more legato, and also going to it, instead of one out of three picking two out of three. Yeah. Instead. That's the that's Van Halen did did a lot of that like on the Van Halen one and all that stuff all those runs. Oh yeah, hammering the middle note, exactly. Okay, well it, I I figured a lot of you know there's all kinds of things I've read about over the years. Yeah. In, uh, well, in the magazine, you know, circular picking, economy picking, 
this yeah. you know sweeping and then all of a sudden now I'm 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 starting from scratch. <laughs> how do you know how do you do that? Yeah. Got to got to learn that, you know. Got to come up with different yeah. ways of of you know adapting to my situation. Well, power to you, man, and uh, I wish you the best with all of that. Well, thank you. It's yeah, it's 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 a kind of an adventure learning learning a new language. Yeah, it's I frustrating think- that I can't go back to my comfortable language <laughs> <laughs> right but yeah that's i mean i think that's your that's your theme you're always learning a new language whether it's welding or a new guitar language <laughs> yeah. or airplanes or classical composition and yeah you see my welding <laughs> definitely student <laughs> uh, i think you're being humble again thank you for coming steve you're the thank best you. man you're playing so good man we need guys like you doing what you're doing for for music journalism but obviously you're you're sort of musically overqualified for any job like that you know it's, oh, it's weird to that that you can play anything and hear anything and oh, then yeah. analyze anything well you're so, very very kind um, that's I've I can, let me introduce you to some of my friends together every time we've done something together and every time i hear you play i'm, I'm reminded of that is that you really you've got an amazing amount of talent and it, it's really cool to have you talking about other people's music because you have an insight that is you know you're not fooled by anything i mean you you can get right to the meat and potatoes oh thank you so that's, much for saying that man um, that's invaluable i really appreciate that uh it's uh of course I'm thinking that I got to introduce you to some of my friends. There's so many brilliant guys that, you know, I know in this industry, probably like within 20 feet of us in this building are sitting in, but I do appreciate that so yeah, much. That's a good, a good thing to bring up is that in the music business, some people, maybe they're in the right place at the right time or, you know, whatever, for whatever reason, they get their 15 minutes of exposure. But for every one of those, there's thousands that are, just amazing that that don't get that that kind of exposure so true and and i i know from traveling all around the world that that artistic spirit you know when when people have it it comes out and there's like i said there's just so many thousands of of amazing players and i i really want to thank somebody like you, who's helping to promote live music, you know, actual people playing music. It's, it's something that, it makes the world a better place. And it's one of the most, well, one of the most positive things a musician does is you're speaking one language that everybody understands and there's no politics, you know, unless you write a song like uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash right. <laughs> about right. Kent State or something. No, they're... It's so true, though. It's the one language that yeah. crosses every yeah. divide. And people need that. People need hope. They need something to, you know, positive. And I know the people in Hollywood are making action movies, you know, with all these unbelievable things happening in them. And that's entertainment, too. And that's, that's kind of universal, but not like music. Music is pure, and it's usually pure emotion. It's a big calling. Yeah. And I would like to add one thing that I think is super important for our times, is that everybody that has a ability to have a platform even if that platform is you know one foot tall uh talking to the class to be aware of the responsibility we're influencing other people and musicians everybody that has a position of exposure to the public has a responsibility 
what they do affects the way other people sort of are influenced by it and the way other people conduct themselves. I think our culture needs everyone in the media, including musicians, to realize they play a part in shaping our culture. Don't be flippant about that amount of power that you wield. Wield it carefully. Man, word. So inspiring and so true. And every, everyone has a little ability to shape the way the earth is spinning. Yes. So. And when you've got a microphone, it's even more important. When you have, yeah, like you said, even, even two people listening to you. Yeah. That's, that's actually one of my, the biggest thing I think about. Is, so I guess I'm curious yeah. about societal things, too. <laughs> yep, you are. But I, I believe we, we have to up our game culturally. Fantastic, man. I'm so with you. So well said. And, and again, it's an optimistic way of looking at things. It, it, it's, it's the sunshine again, man. <laughs> it is. We, we can make a difference. You got it. Do you cool. want to? You want to use this, do you? Uh, capo? No, you? no, no. I'm, I'm just, I'm just borrowing. I know. It's, okay, I think I only have one. Shit. All I, right. I, You know everything. <laughs> uh, not even, but I, not, not even close, dude. But I do love the Beatles. This this guitar is a little, uh, I think, the intonation or something. So I apologize for oh, that. Oh, no. You, <laughs> well, you just clamped the capo on it and immediately started playing. That was awesome. Oh, yeah, man. I always I always try to have a capo and a slide. Even though I don't play much slide, you just never know when you might want one. That's cool. Okay, man, you got to go. got to let you go. Yeah, I got to go work on the floor. You're the best, man. Thank uh, you. Thank you so much. God bless you. Thanks. Thank you. That's a little song of mine called Salamander. Hope you don't hate it. I figure, you know, we change up the outro music for the 2016 season of No Guitar Is Safe. You can, of course, hear that on Spotify or iTunes or whatever, or there's a video on YouTube of me and a robot that dies a brutal death. Salamander. But topic at hand i just really hope you enjoyed the steve morse episode that beautiful violin bach partita is courtesy of rachel podger fantastic musician p-o-d-g-e-r rachel podger if you're new to the show well say hello on the facebook page no guitar is safe remember there's a whole bunch of other episodes 
going all the way back. They're all free and waiting for you on your phone. It really helps if you subscribe and maybe even give us a little rating or review in the iTunes store, which many and many, many of you have been doing. Thank you for that. We are getting some nice momentum with this show. Again, thanks to Guitar Player Magazine. Head back to the old episodes. Here's Satriani. Um, who else? Gosh, it's like I'm drawing a blank. Then we had Brad Gillis and, and uh, James Valentine from Maroon 5. Like, go check. If you don't, don't think you like Maroon 5 or something because there's not a whole lot of wide-open shred guitar, well, check out that podcast. You might be surprised what an interesting life and interesting thing James has going on, man. He's, on, he's king of the world with the biggest pop band probably around. And a crazy rig, crazy story. There's just so much going on with these episodes. Um, Greg Howe was a fun episode. I toured with him in India. And what else do we have? Robin Ford. Bruce Foreman's going to kick your ass. Get your ass kicked. Listen to the Bruce Foreman episode. Who else? Joel Hoekstra. White Snake. Fantastic. Guthrie Govan. You got to go in there and listen to how he makes fake slide sounds without a slide. Love it. Man, I could go on and on. Josh Smith, if you want to hear some blues in your face. Got a lot of great episodes coming. Later that afternoon in that conference room where I interviewed Steve Morse, I had Mark Letiri come by. I think that's how you say it. Mark Letiri from Snarky Snarky Puppy. Great young guitar player. Great tone in his hands. I hope I get to see Steve again. There's just so much to talk about with a guy like that. You know, he played guitar for Kansas for a while. Supergroups call this guy. And... What else? He's got another band now called Flying Colors, kind of like a prog supergroup with Mike Portnoy and Neil Morse and some other people. Next week, gonna be a good one. Badass young guitar player playing with a big band. I haven't uh, really promoted this one yet, but I do hope you'll check it out. Hopefully I'll get it next week. Gotta go to Lake Tahoe, play a gig with Jefferson Starship. The rock continues. Harris, Lake Tahoe, come say hello. That's right, Jefferson Starship continues. We've already played four shows without Paul, and it's it's heartbreaking, but like he's right there with us. But I still feel it. I just like just feel like man, there's just so many more conversations, so many more gigs we could have done. I went to Israel and Brazil and Serbia and Tokyo and all over Europe and Canada with that guy and States. And he's very much with us and we miss him so much. And he's so loved. What a poet he was as well. I will always miss his words. And he, tro- and he showed me the true glory of a 12-string. I'm hunting for 12-strings right now to figure which, figure out which one I'm going to get. Maybe a Rickenbacker just like his, if I can swing it. All right, thank you all for listening. Thanks, Zoom, for the awesome H6 handy recorder that I use to record these. Remember what it would sound like if we didn't have the Zoom. Sounds better with it, don't you think? And I want to thank Steve for really spontaneously at the end there offering his look at the universe. I mean, that was so right on what he said. Don't get flippant about your own power to influence even the nearest people around you. Or maybe you have a microphone, or maybe you're a rock star. Maybe you have a platform in front of dozens, hundreds, thousands, or millions of people. Whatever it is, even if it's just your nephew, whatever the case, you have this power to change things for the better. Thank you, Steve, for that. I also like how he said that basically, how did he word it? Everything's amazing to him. Keep it all amazing to you, too. Keep it alive till you're 95. 